Well, it's an awesome privilege to be able to serve your junior high students here at this church because I know junior high has a lot of stereotypes. Maybe that they're annoying or hard to talk to or difficult to live with, but I just wanna tell you that your junior high students are great at this church. You are great parents because you do a great job um, and make my job a joy and a pleasure. So I love serving this church and we don't just do serious things. We also do the occasional fun thing in the narrow junior high ministry. Like this week, we did a game night, which get this, it's exactly what it sounded like. It was a game night and all it was was like 10 different stations where we built these games and one of the game ideas that we had that never made it past the first stage of planning was the idea to play tackle football in the courtyard. For some reason, we thought that was a bad idea. I'm not sure, I think it could have been cool, it would have made for a good video, but it didn't happen. You probably wouldn't want to see your junior high students tackling each other, getting bloody noses, breaking elbows, none, nothing like that. But I bet most of you, or at least some of you, will turn on your TVs today and watch some dudes who are huge play some football and maybe get some bloody noses and some broken elbows. You're probably gonna do that today. Well, there's a difference, right? They've got the pads. And there's something noble about these dudes who strap on all these pads and go take each other out. And one of the cool things about football that I think is that offensive line, that set of five or six guys who stand at the front who block. They block the defense and they're protecting the ball. Something that's amazing about what they do is they're pretty selfless because all they do is get beat up for three hours a game and they just take all these hits to protect the quarterback, to protect the ball, to move the ball down the field to accomplish the objective of the game, which is winning the game. For the last six weeks, we've been talking about evangelism. We've been talking about the objective of our church and of every church throughout all of church history, which is to make disciples. That means the job of every Christian is to work as a team to make disciples. And what I really wanna emphasize this morning, we're gonna turn to a passage that talks about how we must work as a team. Making disciples is not a solo sport. It's not something we can do on our own. It's something that we are called together to work together as a church to do. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. This might be familiar to some of you because you just read it in our DBR yesterday. We read Philippians chapter two this morning. We read it in the service. So this book is a really important book. And for some people, it's a favorite book because it's about joy. It's about unity. It's about selflessness. And you think this must have been written by some guy in a log cabin in Montana. <laughs> some person in a Roman villa overlooking the Tiber River in the first century. No, it's not. And you probably know that. It's written by a guy who's in jail. Written by a man who's been working for the gospel, working to advance the gospel, so much so that he was in jail. We find out in verse 12 that what happened to him, he says, was a good thing. You might expect if you got a letter from someone who was in jail, let's say a friend wrote to you in jail, you probably expect for them to say, you know, the food stinks, the guy who's next to me is smelly, it's a really bad experience, but what Paul says is, what's happened to me in going to jail has really served to advance the gospel. He says that in verse 12, and he says, because I'm, my imprisonment has made known Christ to a ton of people, the whole imperial guard, knows that my imprisonment is not because I'm a bad guy, it's not because I'm a rebel, it's because I serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It says because of that, in verse 14, he says, a lot of people, the Roman Christians who are together here with me in Rome, they heard about my boldness and it made them more bold. And now, in verse 27, he's gonna say, here's what I want you to do about this. He's done describing his situation. He described that his life is all about Christ in verse 21. And in verse 27, he says this to these Christians. It says only, let your manner of life be worthy 
of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, I wanna come to you. And the verses before, he says, it's actually my plan to come to you. We'll see if it happens. But my plan is to come to you. And when I come to you, or if I don't get to come to you, I just wanna hear that you guys are working together. Not just working together to get along and have a good relationship in your church. That's important too. But working together to a common goal. Working together to advance the gospel. Just like Paul was advancing the gospel, just like the Roman Christians were advancing the gospel, he says, Philippian Christians, you need to advance the gospel and you need to work together. Advancing the gospel is scary though, right? If I said, hey, you're supposed to preach this message and you're gonna get rejected and people aren't gonna like you. Like, well, uh, that kind of stinks. That doesn't sound very good. Well, look at verse 28. He knows that's how they're gonna feel and this is what he says. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This The fact that they're not frightened, that is a clear sign to them of their destruction and, or but, of your salvation and that from God. Boldness to do evangelism does two things to two different types of people. To the type of person who's doing the evangelism boldly, that's salvation assurance. And not salvation assurance that, oh yeah, I've earned my salvation. It says here clearly that that salvation is from God. But the fact that you step up boldly in your workplace to share the gospel, that ought to do something to your heart which says, wow, I, I am in Christ, this, this is great, this salvation truly is good, I've been sharing it. But what about to the other people? Well, your boldness also shows as a clear sign that they're wrong, that they do need to turn to Christ, that they do need to turn from their sins and trust in him. It says something scary in verse 29. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That phrase, it's been granted to you, is almost always used in the New Testament to talk about a gift. Right? That's kind of how it sounds, right? It's been granted to you that you should get a $100 Amazon gift card or that you should get a new car, right? It's been granted to you, it's a gift, right? So he says, first of all, it's been granted to you that you should believe in Christ. And all of us say, yeah, that's a great gift. And then it also says, it's also been granted to you as a gift to suffer for Christ. It says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. He says, I'm in this fight, I've been in this fight, you guys know me. Apostle Paul says, you know that I've been striving for the gospel. I want you to get in the game too. We heard a lot of sermons about evangelism and hopefully that has spurred you on to do more evangelism. Hopefully that's encouraged you to share the gospel with some people that you were frightened to share the gospel with before. Hopefully it's done that. But I wanna encourage you this morning to work together to share the gospel. Work together as a team, as this church is a team work together with each other to win people to Christ and get them added to this team. What I wanna do is give you three reminders this morning, or just three reminders about how we can work together as a team to reach people for Christ. The first comes from these last three verses, 28, 29, and 30, about not being afraid, not being frightened. It's been granted to you as a gift to believe in Christ and also to suffer for Christ. We have to have a perspective change if we think that rejection is a good thing. Whenever you're rejected, you always say, well, that was a bad thing. That was a loss. What Paul says is, your suffering for Christ is not a loss. It's not a bad thing. It's not a surprise. It's something that you should expect, and it has been given to you as a gift from God. I want us to write this down for point number one. Be okay with rejection for Christ. Be okay with rejection for Christ. That right there takes a mindset change. That takes us 
thinking backwards, thinking upside down of what we would normally think. But Paul says it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. I want you to think this question through, maybe very honestly. Do you believe that it is a gift that you are able to suffer for Christ? Is that a gift or is that like a side effect? You know, the drug commercials, they list all the side effects, right? Oh, you're a Christian. Hey, well, just one of the side effects, by the way. Yeah, you're gonna suffer a little bit, right? Do you view suffering that way or do you view it as that's just, that's just part of the deal? That, 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 is, that has been granted to me as a gift that I get to suffer for Christ. That's upside down thinking. That takes us changing our perspective. That's a little different than we would normally think. Well, if you're gonna be rejected and you were scared about being rejected, I hope that you would remember what Christ suffered for you. If you're gonna suffer for Christ, and we're gonna say we gotta get okay with suffering for Christ and being rejected for Christ, what all of us need to do real quickly this morning is we need to remember the rejection that Christ suffered for you. Was Christ rejected? Absolutely. John 1 says he came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. I mean, imagine that. Jesus, he's God. He's God, he's the creator God. John 1 says that in him everything was made. And if he was not involved in the creation process, nothing would be here. He comes to this world. He humbles himself. He takes on human flesh, as we just read in Philippians 2. He he condescended. He, He came down and he was rejected. It doesn't make sense, right? He goes to his own people and his own people don't accept him. They reject him. I mean, think about this. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. When he came on the scene, all of the religious leaders should have been clapping their hands and saying, this is the guy. This is the Christ. Look, look at Micah 5. Look at Isaiah 7. He's born of a virgin. He's born in Bethlehem. He's from the line of Judah. This is the Christ. He's doing miracles. He's doing exactly what Isaiah 11 said. But no, rejected by them, by seemingly everybody. The greatest rejection of Christ came at the end. I know we talked about it recently in the book of Luke, but remember when his best friends rejected him? Rejected, turned away, all but one. All but the apostle whom Jesus loved turned away. And on a much grander scale, rejected by God, treated as someone who was a sinner. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says that God treated Jesus like he was a sinner so that us, sinful people, could be considered righteous like he was. Think about that rejection, imagine that. You can't hardly even imagine it. Sometimes we're afraid to suffer for Christ because we forgot what Christ suffered for us. And if we were to remember what Christ suffered for us, I'm sure that would motivate all of us to suffer for him and be okay with it. Not to think of it as some scary thing that I can't do, I can't, I can't share Christ because what if I'm rejected? More than that, Jesus promised that you would be rejected. Jesus made a promise to the disciples specifically, but I think it applies to all of us, that if you stand up for Christ, you will be rejected. John 15, John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Right? If we're one team, if the church is one team, every real Christian is on a team, and, and Christ is the captain, Christ is the leader, Christ is the coach. Well, then he says, just know that the world is gonna hate you because you're associated with me. It says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, right? But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christians run on a different operating system than the world. You can't expect the world to love you and applaud you when you stand up for what's right, when you stand up for what's true, when you reject sin, 
when you say, I'm not gonna do this thing, I'm not gonna say these words, I'm not gonna go to these places. What do we expect? We expect the world to applaud us? We shouldn't. We should expect rejection just logically. But even more than logically, Jesus says, he promises it. The next verse, Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Some of us, unfortunately, maybe fall into the mindset where we think for some reason Jesus was rejected, but I'm not gonna be. You know, at my work, I'm not gonna be rejected because I'm I'm generally a good guy. You know, I follow the rules. The world's not gonna reject me. I, I know they rejected Jesus, but we don't make that connection. Jesus says, let's make that connection. If you're a real Christian, just realize that if you're associated with Christ, you will be rejected by the world even when it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense when you feel like you're doing great things for people. You're gonna be rejected for the world, by the world. Why? Because Jesus promised it. But then he also ends with some encouragement. He says, if they kept my word, they'll also keep your word. Right? Evangelism is gonna be successful. You might be rejected by some people, by some family members, by some coworkers, by some people that you really care about. Maybe a husband, maybe a wife. You might be rejected by them. Just know that God's gonna use you to reach people if you're faithful to preach that gospel. We talked about the apostles rejecting Christ for a time at least, the most famous of which is Peter. Right, we get that idea of him uh, being so bold and saying, I'll never reject you, Jesus. And then he turns his back three times, even down to a little servant girl asking Peter, hey, hey, are you with Jesus? He turns away and says, no, no, I'm not with Jesus. He called down curses upon himself. And we think, man, what, 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 a, what a bad thing. Well, if you know the story, you know in the book of Acts, their repentance is proved right from the get-go. From Acts 2, Peter, the guy who was afraid to be associated with Jesus, stands in that same plot of ground and he preaches Christ and 3,000 people come to Christ. In Acts chapter five, which we'll get to in about two, three, maybe four years. um, we see their repentance proved even more. Acts 5 verse 40 says that the apostles were gathered together by this council of Jewish leaders. And what happened was they were gathered together, told not to preach, and then beat up. Imagine the pastors of your church getting gathered together, brought to some official looking council. They take baseball bats, they break their knees, they break their arms, and now they've got bloody backs and they walk back to the church, beat up and bruised with faces swollen. How would you feel? Probably like, whoa, I, I, I don't know if I wanna be on this team anymore. Can I back out? Can, can I get rid of my contract? It says, here's what the apostles did. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced and they said, yes, Jesus promises. Yes, this is so good. Not they weren't feeling good about their wounds. They weren't feeling good about being beat up. They weren't even feeling good about being put to shame in front of their culture, but you know what they did feel good about? I am associated with Christ in my suffering. You know, some of you might be discouraged because a family member has said, I don't wanna have anything to do with you. You Christian, you narrow-minded bigot. You might be discouraged by that. Just know that suffering for Jesus is always worth it because Jesus says, you're on my team. The apostles rejoiced they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The next verse says it didn't stop. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Don't let suffering or rejection slow your evangelism down. Let it just be fuel for the fire. Let it be fuel 
for you to keep reaching people who are lost. You might say, well, I've never been beat up before. I've never been put in jail for Christ. Well, I wanna turn to a passage where Peter, this same person who's in the narrative of Acts, where he is rejected, and he says, you know what, to this group of people in 1 Peter? He says, don't be surprised, even if you're insulted for the name of Christ. I will, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter four. Be great. 1 Peter chapter four. Peter's writing to a group that he calls the elect exiles. It's a fancy way of saying they're Christians living on earth in a place that's not their home. And he tells them not to be surprised if they face persecution. In fact, they're supposed to be okay with it. It's a perspective change, right? Rejection, it never feels good. Right? I'm not telling you, you need to have rejection feel good, but I need you to be okay with it. We all need to get okay with not being embraced. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Sometimes we think that when we're persecuted for Christ, what's going on? I don't get it. I've been such a nice neighbor. I've been such a nice coworker. And the moment I bring up Christ, they don't wanna be friends anymore. What's, what's wrong with that? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Right? There's, there's two, two sides to this coin right here. He says, rejoice if you share in Christ's sufferings, which is a, a, an amazing thing all on its own that you get to share with Christ in his suffering. He says, because if you share in Christ's sufferings, you will also be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're one of the people who's made fun of at your workplace for being one of those Christians, those people who believe that old book, you get made fun of for that. Jesus says, my glory is revealed when I come back and I'm king and I will rule this world as Psalm 2 says, with a rod of iron. When I'm the king, guess what? You're gonna be exalted. It will always be worth it. It says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, that's verse 14, you're blessed. Some of you might've said, yeah, I'm not one of those people. I've never been beat up. I've never been taken to jail for Christ. But I bet this has happened to you if you've tried to share the gospel, if you've tried to plead with someone that their eternal soul is on the line and if they continue in their sins, they're destined for eternal destruction, I bet you've been insulted. If you haven't, it's because you probably haven't been bold enough. And if you have been insulted, which I'm sure all of you can understand and empathize with, he says, you're blessed. It's backwards, right? Seems upside down. Then he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. This is the side of suffering that's not suffering for Christ. So every time that you suffer, he's not saying you should attribute that suffering and say, oh, I'm, I'm persecuted. If you were thrown in jail for going 120 miles an hour on Alicia, which could happen, I think. You can, you can get arrested for going over a certain, I've never done it, so I don't know. But, <laughs> but someone told me, right, you could be, get arrested. Anyway, you get arrested because you're going 120 miles an hour down Alicia, super dangerous. And you go to jail this afternoon, you're like, I applied Pastor John's sermon. I, I'm suffering for Christ, everybody. Like, no, that's not how it works. Right? Suffer for Christ, share in suffering with Christ, but if you just suffer for breaking the law as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or a meddler, there's, there's nothing to rejoice in in that. That's just reaping what we've sown. But he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, Christian. 
associated with Christ. That's why it's a big deal around here, especially that we say, are you a Christian? That doesn't just mean, do you show up to church? It doesn't just mean, did you grow up in a family with parents that follow Jesus? That means, am I associated with Jesus by trusting in his life, in his death, in his resurrection? If you are and you suffer for him, rejoice, because you're on that team. It says, don't be ashamed. Jesus said so poignantly in Luke chapter nine, verse 26, says, if you're ashamed of me, if you're a person who's ashamed to be a Christian. You're ashamed to bear my name. You're ashamed to spread the gospel. He says, those are the people that I will be ashamed of in the end. That ought to freak us out a little bit, right? That should be a little bit scary that Jesus says, I'm gonna be ashamed of people who are ashamed of me. What does it look like to be ashamed of Jesus, right? I don't wanna be one of those people. When we have the opportunity and we turn away because we say, well, they might not embrace this. We have the opportunity to present Christ but we say, ah, no, I'll do it a different time. Or when people say bad things about Christians, you say, I don't wanna be associated with them. I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian. Maybe some of you have even done that. Been like Peter and just denied it altogether. We don't wanna be ashamed of Jesus because if you think about it, you have nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. If anything, Jesus should be ashamed of us. Has Jesus ever failed you? Has Jesus ever not kept his promises? What about us? Have we ever sinned against him? Oh yeah. We ever disappointed him by not keeping his word? We ever disappointed him by hurting others with our words? Have we ever done that? Absolutely. One of the amazing truths of the Bible is if you trust in Jesus, you will never ever be put to shame, ever. That might sound naive, but that's what Romans 8 says. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you're right with God through Christ, what do we have to be ashamed about? Even your own sin. He throws it back at you in, in Romans 8, and he says, it's God who justifies. Right? Who is it to condemn? Nobody can condemn you if God has justified you in Christ. If he's taken all the merit that Jesus has earned in his perfect life, and all the suffering that he suffered on the cross for you, and there's been that great exchange, your life for his, your suffering for his, Who, who's gonna condemn you? Nobody, nothing. And then it goes on to say, we are, are like sheep being slaughtered, Christians. He, he's talking about uh, this persecution that's happening. He says, it, it's like we're being, we're being cast aside by the world. The world hates us right now. He says, are we defeated in that? He says, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can height, depth, demonic power, can the, the future, the past, the present, can life, can death, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is a big resounding no. You're secure. If you're a person who trusts in Christ, you have no need to be ashamed of Christ. And you have no fear that he'll be ashamed of you. That's why earlier in our passage, Philippians 1.21, or verse 20 actually, Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed of myself in that regard, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If you're a Christian and you're afraid of suffering or you're afraid of rejection, you probably have forgotten Philippians 121. Or at least you've forgotten that that's true about you if you're in Christ. To live is Christ, that's all it is. It's, it's all we've got left. Our life is all about Christ. And to die, yeah, that would be gain. There's nothing that anyone can do to us. Well, Philippian, the Philippians and Paul were together in the conflict and in verse 30, he says, I've been engaged in this conflict. I want you to be engaged in this conflict. That's why in verse 27 he says, I want you to strive side by side. It's a cool athletic picture. It's like that offensive line. Or it's like soldiers standing next to each other, ready to get off the boats and storm the beach. That is the picture. He says, I want you to strive side by side together as a unit. There's certain strength that you can find knowing that you're not the only one. Rejection hurts because you feel like you're the only one, right? In your family, in your workplace. You think, I'm, I'm the only Christian. And maybe you are. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace. But look around. Seriously, look around. You, you, you're allowed to look around. I know it's the nine o'clock service, but you can look around. Look at this team. I, I mean, we've got a lot of people here. We've got a lot of people who are on your team. You can find strength in your team. That's point number two. I'd love you for you to write it down. Find evangelistic strength in your team. Find evangelistic strength in your team. It's cool to be a part of a team. Remember when you were a little kid and you got that jersey, you got that little league jersey, number one or two or seven, felt good. That's why your kids all like wearing their jerseys. Maybe they wear their jerseys too much. Maybe they wear them to sleep. Probably done that before in my life. Maybe you have, but it's exciting to be a part of a group. I want you to find that excitement again. I want us as a church, and for myself included, I want us to work together to find that strength again. And ultimately, that strength does not solely come from other Christians. Ultimately, it comes from God himself. And when he says, strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel, just remember this, the gospel is truth and it will never change. It's constant. There's no change in it. It's the truth. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Is that true? I mean, yeah, it's true. And we can all admit, oh, yeah, I agree. I can shake my head and say yes. But when it comes time to share the gospel, do you believe that? Do you hold to that? Is that something that secures your heart to know this gospel, this good news that I believe about, about God and his holiness and his perfection and his justice and Jesus' saving life and death and resurrection and the response of repentance and faith, that has always been true, that will always be true, and I know that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That gives us confidence, right? That's why in Galatians, Paul, who's so intense about the gospel, gets really intense when people start tweaking the gospel, when people start adding things to the gospel. What Paul said in Galatians chapter one, verse six, is he says, I'm astonished. He got really mad. Paul was all upset. He's like, I'm astonished that you would leave the gospel. It's like, wait, they're not leaving the gospel. They're just kind of twisting it a little bit. They're just adding a couple things. He says, I'm astonished. Not that there is another gospel. I want you to think this through. Is there another gospel that saves than the one we believe? Is there a new message? Is there something new that's gonna show up on our news feed that debunks the gospel? Never. 
Never. But when we lose confidence in the gospel and we think it's some opinion, we shy away. What I mean by the gospel is truth is not that it's my truth. I'm not saying it's your truth. I'm saying it's the truth. It's the power of God to everyone who believes. The goal of Philippians 1:27 is get every local congregation, every body of Christians working together like a single person, striving side by side as one soul. That's the literal translation. Work as one soul together as a church. It reminds me of marching bands at a football game. We've been talking about football, right? So we can give a little love to the marching band people, right? My dad's in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm pretty sure he didn't go to a Tennessee Volunteers game yesterday. But if he did, I don't really know. If he did, Pastor PJ said he didn't, so we'll go with that. If he did, you know what he'd be more interested in? The game or the halftime show? Do you know your pastor? He'd be more interested in the marching band. I, I've been to games with him. It's like, oh, they're so cool. And then during the game, he's on his Kindle, right? That's how it works. <laughs> so he'd be more interested in this marching band. And I guess there's good reason for that because the marching bands for these college football games, they do all these cool like spelling words and painting the Mona Lisa. And <laughs> yesterday, Ohio State did this thing where they had a rocket and they... They propelled and there was smoke and stuff. It was pretty cool. Uh, Pastor PJ told me about that, so I don't know if it's true. I'll go with it, yes. But let's just say that the tubas decided, you know what, I'm done with being a tuba. I feel like we don't get enough love here. You know what, I'm underappreciated. The trumpets and the trombone and the flutes and those little piccolo things, they get all the love. I'm out of here. And they just kind of walk off in the middle of the, in the, middle of the halftime show. You'd be really confused, right? You'd think, well, this isn't as good as I thought it was. They're not working together as a team. Now, imagine that same disunity comes into the football team who, after halftime, they get back on the field, and as those offensive linemen get ready to block the defensive tackles, they say, you know what, no, and they start fighting with each other, and they say hike, and then the offensive linemen are just fighting against each other, and the defensive linemen get a sack. You'd say, wow, that looked like the Rams on Thursday night. Um, <laughs> I say that with great deference and suffering in my heart. I watched the end of that game. I was at Thrive, so I didn't, I didn't watch it. I didn't check it. And then I get home, and I sit in front of the TV, and I am crushed. I, I've, I feel like I've never been so in, emotionally invested in this game. I sat there, and for two minutes, my wife can tell you after, I didn't say anything. I was, I was crushed. So that didn't come from a, a place of malice. That came from sympathy and love. But it looked like the Rams, like, just not getting along, not working together. When we don't work together as a team and we work against each other, that ruins our effectiveness in evangelism. If our offensive linemen, if our evangelists, if you or your small group or your friend group here at this church or me, if we start turning against each other, guess what that does? That makes us completely ineffective in making disciples. If we spend all of our time and effort having to resolve conflicts that we create within ourselves, you know what we don't have any more time and effort to do? Work together to share the gospel. That needs to be our main focus. And even that, the goal of advancing the gospel and winning more souls, that should motivate us to let some things go with our friendships. That should motivate us to let some of this disunity go. And disunity is something that Paul warned in the church is so it just ruins things. It's horrible. I want us to turn to a passage that's all about unity and disunity, 
but we don't always think about it that way. I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter four. It, it makes sense at the beginning of this book, but at the end of this, uh, this chapter, we think that the commands of this chapter are isolated from the context. So let's just check it out. We'll see the whole context of this chapter, and then I want to look at some familiar commands that you've heard before. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, sounds a lot like Philippians 1.27. He says, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That sounds a lot like Philippians 1.27, because it is. It is with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. When we walk into our small groups this week, when we go to our abide group, our thrive group, our home fellowship group, our bridge group, our alliance group, is that our mindset? I'm here, and what I wanna do most, most of all is maintain unity and maintain the bond of peace. He says, this is why, verse four, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call. There's not multiple groups of Christians, right? If you're a Christian, you're a Christian, and that's it. There's no subcategories in, in, in the word Christian. We're all in one body, one church. Then he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. If there's anything that unifies us, it should be our relationship to God through Christ. The church is called a body, right? and that is a famous metaphor from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, from right here in Ephesians 4, that we are a body, and then we have members. The whole church is a body, and we individually are members. Some of us are spleens, some of us are gallbladders. That's the one, never mind. That, that goes against everything that I'm saying. Now, that's the one that's not technically useful. Right, we're all useful. So you're a finger, you're not a gallbladder. I'll be the gallbladder in this illustration, that's fine. I'll be the gallbladder. But we're different members in one body, working together, and what happens when your body fights against itself? What is it called when your body fights with itself? It's a disease, an autoimmune disease specifically. You're fighting against yourself. Your immune system is attacking the healthy cells. That happens when we're not unified. Now drop to verse 25. I said that the beginning of this makes sense. We're all talking about unity, we're one body. And then at verse 25, sometimes we forget that this is all placed in the context of unity within the local church. Verse 25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When it comes to speaking, when it comes to telling the truth, he says you need to tell the truth with other Christians because guess what? We are one body. We're supposed to be. We can't fight against one another. Verse 26, he goes on. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Sometimes we plot that out of its context and we think that that's talking about husbands and wives. Right? And sure, it applies there. Sometimes we think it's talking about kids and parents. Sometimes we think it's talking about friend and friend. But what is it really talking about? What's the, what's the center context of this whole chapter? Church unity. Right? Yes, all those principles apply to your marriage and they apply to your parenting. But do not let the sun go down on your anger. That idea, that you know, metaphoric way to say, don't hold a grudge, what is that referring to as a whole? Church unity, getting along, and give no opportunity to the devil. That's verse 27. That's one that we really take out of context, right? Give no opportunity to the devil. What is it talking about? Disunity. 
verse 28. Another verse that might sound random, but let's fit it in the context. It says, therefore, or it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? What is this thief no longer stealing and working hard all about? It's not just about him, it's about the community. It's about the body of Christians. Verse 29, this one might sting. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What's the context? Disunity and unity in the church. Let no corrupting talk in your small group or after your small group or the gossip that you start because of what was said in small groups. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It's so hard for us to do this sometimes, but it is so important. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Oftentimes we don't think about our words as gifts we're supposed to give to the people we love in Christ. They're gifts. Are your words gifts? He says, let your words be gifts. Why? Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You know what this verse is saying? What grieves the Holy Spirit? When we don't get along. That makes the Holy Spirit sad when you and I do not get along with one another. Grieves him. A lot of other things grieve him, certainly, yeah. I mean, any type of sin certainly grieves the Holy Spirit, but disunity. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Right now, now we're just talking about every, every sin that Paul can think of, basically. It sounds like he's just going after us. Bitterness, right? holding grudges, wrath are explosions of anger. Our anger, our hot burning anger. Clamor, right? when we were just singing bad things. Slander, when we make up things. And when we say things that are kind of true but not really true, but it kind of proves my point to, to twist it a little bit, so I'll just twist it a little bit to prove the point that I was trying to make. Slander, put that away along with all malice, with all, just anything that you do for a bad reason to wanna hurt someone else, whether it's a word, whether it's an action. He says, in the church, we have to put it away. And on the positive side, verse 32, be kind to one another. That's more than just being nice. Being kind is, is more than that because being kind, what that means is giving grace. Just kinda like those words that he said, you wanna give grace to those who hear. Same idea here, when you, kind, when you look at kindness, it's giving grace being helpful, tenderhearted. That right there, that's a very internal thing. It says don't just do good things with a hard heart, do good things because you really, really are compassionate for people. The word means that you feel it in your gut. When you see people hurting, when you see Christian brothers and sisters hurting, you don't do what 1 John 3 says, you have the world's goods, you see that they're in need and you close your heart against them. But instead you're open-hearted, you're tenderhearted. This is the hardest one. Save the hardest one for last. Forgiving one another. Sometimes we think, well, disunity, it's not my problem, it's their problem. Disunity, it wouldn't be a problem if they didn't do this. It wouldn't be a problem if they, they weren't just such a, this type of person. It wouldn't be a problem if they, if they didn't say that thing. What is the most powerful remedy for disunity? Right here, forgiveness. You might say, well, do I have to? Do I have to forgive? Are we sure we have to forgive? You know the answer. As God in Christ forgave you, that's how he ends it. Disunity is so hurtful to the church as a whole. It's important for us to remember that and to fight against that. 
well, how do we do this? How do we really reach the lost together? Well, first thing we can do is we can work together to train together. And I wanna give you three things. That's the first thing, train together. I wanna give you three things that you can do to work together and find strength as a team. The first thing is train together. One of the reasons that you might be afraid to share the gospel is because there's that person in your life who's an atheist. There's a person in in your life that's an agnostic or or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or, or a Mormon and you don't know how to talk to them. Well, train together. That's one of the gifts that this local church is to you. That's why when Pastor Mike does Compass Night, all of us can get involved in that or we can watch it online afterwards because that's meant for our training to train us to be able to answer hard questions, to take away that fear. We can work together in your small group. Train together. Share helpful books, share helpful resources. Maybe send a YouTube link of someone doing evangelism. It's like, that's really cool. That's something I could say. I haven't thought about that. Hey, why don't you guys check this out? I was watching on YouTube, this person doing evangelism. You know, this is great. You could train together. Also, share together. You could literally share the gospel together with other people. Everything is less scary when you do it with somebody else, especially things you feel like you've never done or you're ill-equipped for. Sometimes they're scary to do when you're by yourself. You know how Jesus sent out his big, strong, tough apostles? Sent them out individually, right? No, sent them out two by two. Peter, John, James, these rugged guys you think wouldn't be afraid of anything. They could sleep on the floor and use the rock as a pillow, right? Those guys, what did he do? He sent them two by two. Why? So they'd be twice as effective because they'd have each other. Evangelism was never meant to be done alone. And sometimes, by necessity, it is done alone because you are sitting at your desk and you're talking to the person at the desk next to you and your whole church isn't behind you, right? (laughs) That would be a really stuffed room depending on the size of your office, right? Well, how can we be there without being there? The third thing, pray together, pray together. Train together, share together. We can also pray together. When you ask people for prayer, for evangelism, it does a couple things. First of all, it gets their prayer, hopefully, if they're praying. It gets them asking God for the same thing that you're asking for, hopefully, right? I'm assuming that, that you're praying for the people you wanna reach that you remember those four people you wrote down on that card five weeks back, and you're remembering those people, and you're praying for those people, but then once you start bringing other people into it, you're doubling the prayer. God certainly hears all of our prayers, but he loves it when we pray together. Also, when you ask someone to pray for an evangelistic conversation, if you've ever done this and had a faithful accountability partner, you know what they'll do? They'll pray, and then they'll ask you how it went. And sometimes here is how this goes, right? We've all been here. You say, I want you to pray that this conversation I have with this person will be good and effective and that they'll hear the gospel and they'll repent. And the next week, you have a meeting or you have a small group with that person and they say, hey, how'd that conversation go? And you're like, ooh, I forgot about that. Ooh, sorry, it'll happen this week, right? That's happened to all of us before, right? Well, that helpful reminder of having other people praying for you is a reminder because it brings other people into our accountability circles. It's helpful in every way. That's why it's good that even our church is so, our church is so big. 
you're blessed to be at a church who's so big. And in a lot of ways we say, oh man, I wish the big church was small. That's where your small groups come in. That's where your home fellowship groups come in. And I'd encourage you, you might be listening to this sermon thinking, well, I've only been here for two weeks. I've only been here for a month. I've only been here for three months. I'd encourage you, get involved in a group, whether it's Thrive Young Marrieds, whether it's Abide for older marrieds, whether it's um, young professionals, college age, maybe you're a student here, maybe you're just uh, an average adult and you wanna get in, in a home fellowship group. We'd love for you to do that because then that gets you with a team. You can feel disconnected because the team might feel so big, but hopefully we're connected with a group that makes the big team feel small. Just wanna remind you that when we don't work together as a team, we miss out, right? We do. We miss out on conversations, but it's not just us who misses out. More importantly, I want you to remember all the people who are missing out when we fight with one another or we're not taking those opportunities, who misses out? I think you know what I'm getting at. All the people in our community. Think about that. That they're missing out on hearing the good news because what we're doing is worried about fighting with one another. But that can, let that never be the case of your small group. Let that never be the case of your ministry. Let that never be the case of our church. That's the main reason why disunity is bad for evangelism is because the people who need to be evangelized, the people who need to hear the good news, never hear the good news. There's another way, to put it negatively, that we can mess up as a team. Back in verse 27 of Philippians 1, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Flip that on its head. Think about it backwards. Don't not live worthy. Double negative, John. I get it, I get it. Double negative. Well, you can write it down like this. Point number three, don't make the gospel look bad. Don't make the gospel look bad. We can do that by not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. When we become self-focused, worried about our issues and our problems, not worried about the people in our community who need to hear the gospel. Live worthy, live up to what you claim to believe is what he's trying to say. If you think back to those pro athletes, those NFL players, if they don't live worthy or consistently with what their job title is, wide receiver, defensive tackle. If they don't live worthy and they start worrying about other things on the field, they're gonna get pulled, right? Because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Our job as a church, just remember, this is a reminder, is to make disciples. And when we're worried about other things and when we're not living worthy, we're messing up as well. This passage, only let your manner of life Maybe there's a translation that might sound better. Um, when it says manner of life, it's not just talking about the way that you live. The, the word literally means live as a citizen. You can see how that would be confusing. Right? If you said only live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ, that would get confusing because you'd think, okay, well, a citizen of what? Right? Are we talking about um, America? Are we talking about Rome? Are we talking about Philippi? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer in Philippians chapter three, verse 20. It says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Doesn't that add an extra, maybe motivation to the way that you live worthy? What are we living worthy of? What's our standard? Well, live worthy as a citizen of heaven, as a person who's been called out of their sin and called into righteousness in Jesus, live worthy of that. Or another way to put it, live up to what you claim to believe in the gospel. 
If you believe the gospel, there's a few things you believe. First of all, you believe that there's a God who's a creator, who's holy, who's in charge of everything. He's so good and so powerful and so just that he cannot accept sin in his presence. You believe that about God. Well, do we think about God that way? Do we reflect that in the way that we battle sin? that we believe in a just God who hates sin? Do we, do we live like that? That's, that's what we're claiming to believe, but do we live that way? Claim to believe a lot of things about God. And as citizens, we have certain responsibilities. Just as the citizen of the United States, I got a letter which said I was supposed to do jury duty. Anybody with me? I didn't dodge it, but I did avoid it because I did like the call in and they said, I don't need you. And I was like, yes, I don't have to go in. It was really scary. Was, there was a big ministry thing. And I thought, oh no, I'm gonna be on a jury. So I got out of it, but that was good. Maybe you didn't get out of it last time. Sorry to rub it in. If you were on jury duty and you had to sit on a trial and you know, spend two weeks or whatever doing that. But that's a responsibility as a citizen. Right? What are your responsibilities as a citizen of heaven? I think you can probably think of a couple. First one I can think of comes in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He doesn't just call you a citizen. Paul calls us all ambassadors. That, that's stepping it up. It's one thing to be a citizen of a, of a country or a place. I guess you have the power to make what you represent or the king you represent, you, you can make them look bad, I suppose, but an ambassador, whoa, you really got a position uh, of representation. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And just know this, many people leave the church Maybe people just at least claim that they don't want to join the church. They don't want to become a part of the group of Christians because they don't think Christians live worthy of the gospel. They say Christians are hypocrites or have had a bad experience at church. I've been hurt by people in the church. Usually, that's because Christians did not live worthy of the gospel. They did not live as worthy citizens, as worthy ambassadors. They represented Christ, but they did it negatively. They made Christ look bad. And I want you to think through some people that we've been thinking through already that are in your life that you could share the gospel with. How do you represent Christ to them? When they see you, you might be one of the only Christians in their life. What do they think about the Christ that you say you believe in? What do they think about him? Do they think, wow, this person's life has been changed. I, I knew them when they were young, but, but now... They're all about going to church. They're all about raising their kids this way. They're all about serving. They're all about they're being nice and kind like I've never seen them be nice and kind before. Right? What that is right there is what Titus 2 says is adorning the doctrine of God. In Titus 2, 9, Paul gives some instructions to the Christian bondservants, the slaves, the Roman slaves in the first century that are Christians. And he says, bondservants, be submissive to your own masters and everything. Right? Sounds rough. Employees. Be submissive, submit to your bosses and everything and be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering. That's a real temptation if you were to work in someone's house to take their stuff. They won't notice, I'll just take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That might be how it is, working at a big company. I could take advantage of this, I could take advantage of that. He says, don't be pilfering, don't be argumentative. Why? So that you can adorn the doctrine of God. You can, it's like adorn, it reminds me of a Christmas tree, right? You're putting things on the doctrine of God that make it look good. We all adorn the doctrine of God with something, with our reputations. Well, what is our reputation? What are we adorning the doctrine of God with? Really practically, think about this. 
If you picked out a person in your mind, a person who works with you, or, or is a neighbor, say, I'm gonna share the gospel with this person. And the next time you see them, you walk out, and let's just say, in this scenario, the next time you see them, they say something to you that's a little rude. And you're kind of off put by it. And you kind of snap back and it's like, well, that was pretty rude. And you proceed to tell them why they're wrong. And you get in a little bit of a, of a tiff, a little bit of a fight. And then you walk away. And then you think, oh no, I'm supposed to share the gospel with that person. Oh, this is awkward. Uh, I either have to go back to them and really apologize or, or I'm not gonna do it. Now, rewind the tape. You have that same person in your mind. They go and you go, you see them. They say that same thing that's a little bit rude. And instead of responding with anger or with frustration, you respond with graciousness and flexibility and with grace and with no corrupting words, but with words that build up and encouragement. Now, where are you at when it comes to sharing the gospel? What platform do you have now? You have a great platform. Every conversation that we have with non-Christians can either help our platform or it can ruin our platform. What Paul's saying is live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Don't ruin those platforms to share the gospel as a church and individually. 2 Timothy 2 says it like this. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. If you've heard Pastor Mike preach on this, he talks about toilets and vases made of the same thing, one for honorable use, one for dishonorable use. Are you getting the picture? I don't know if you got the picture. Toilets and vases. Well, uh, one of them used for dishonorable things, one is used for, yeah, see, so finally, some junior hires are getting it. Uh, <laughs> gross. What he says, brings this illustration, maybe leaving a little grosser, says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now you get he's not talking about dirt, he's not really talking about vessels, he's really talking about us. He's talking about us being prepared to do good things or are we not prepared to do th good things by our own sin, by even the sin that nobody else sees, even the things that you think won't affect my platform for the gospel, all of those things are right under here in 2 Timothy 2, you can either be clean and holy and live a certain way and that will prop you up to walk in these good works or you can degrade that by living in such a way that, that messes up our opportunity. Now, it might sound harsh, but there are so many things that we need to stay away from to be effective evangelists, because it matters a lot. It's just like professional athletes. There's certain things they have to stay away from, like Twinkies, or ding-dongs, or staying up really late, I don't know, playing video games until four in the morning. <laughs> Not that they all do a great job avoid avoiding that, but there's certain things they're supposed to stay away from to make them effective for the job they're supposed to do on Sunday morning for the job they're supposed to do on a Friday night. There's certain things they need to stay away from and certain things they need to embrace. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's all the motivation we should ever need right there. I've been crucified with Christ. My old life, my decision-making, I submit all of that to what Jesus wants me to do. Philippians 1.27 says, 
Jesus wants me to team up with people together to bring the gospel to our community, to work together with other families and other couples to bring that lost couple into our church and into our small groups and into our homes so that they can hear the words of life and turn from their sins and trust in the finished work of Jesus. When we work together, we'll help each other face rejection with grace and patience. When we work together, we'll encourage one another to be more bold to share. And also when we work together, we'll keep each other accountable to live a holy lifestyle. And all of that is the praise and glory of God and the advancement of the gospel in this world. And it's my prayer, it's all the pastor's prayers that that would be true of every last person here at Compass Bible Church, that we'd work together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for letting us see your word this morning. I pray that we would respond to it not by simply thinking that if we hear it and get excited about the gospel, that's good enough, but I pray that we would respond by sharing the gospel boldly, without fear, knowing that we believe the truth. There is no under name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only the name of Jesus Christ. We know that it's not an opinion. We know that that is not something that's just true for us. We know that Romans 1.16 says that we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it's your power for salvation to everyone who believes. We believe that. I pray that we'd live that out. I pray that we'd not just claim that here this morning, but we would live in a way that is consistent with that. I pray that you'd help us advance the gospel. We know that it's your gospel. It's your work. I pray that we'd do it successfully as we work together as a team. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.